0: Hello and welcome to the BPL podcast. My name is Josh, and this episode is a recording of a library program about James Weldon Johnson's groundbreaking 1922 anthology, the Book of American Negro Poetry. In this program, Jack Marchbanks was joined by artists Dion Custer Edwards, Scott Woods, and Is Said. All four of them are amazingly accomplished and have a list of achievements that I could go on for hours about, but um, I'll just let them introduce themselves to you as they kind of naturally do in the program. Jack Mark Baines gives a great introduction at the top, and all together they talk about the history and future of Black poetry and art using this centennial celebration as a springboard. This program was generously funded by Jack Marchbanks, the Cradler Family Fund at the Columbus Foundation and the Sam and Gail Schmansky Fund. Without them, programs like this would not be possible and the library is very grateful for all of their support. And with that, I'll turn it over to BPL board member, Sam Schmansky to
1: introduce Jack Marchbanks. I want to welcome you to the Bexley Public Library uh, on behalf of the library and the board of trustees. Um, We are incredibly fortunate to have the support of Doug Cridler and Jack Marchbanks uh, to present this most auspicious event, um, which is the centennial celebration of James Weldon Johnson's Book of American Negro Poetry. We're also extremely fortunate to have poets who are going to um, regale us in real time here this afternoon. Um, Just by way of introduction, of course, Doug runs the Columbus Foundation. He's devoted his life to public service and enriching our community through fundraising, uh, through awareness, uh, through community involvement. Dr. Jack Marchbanks really, to most of you, probably needs no introduction uh, as well. Uh, I don't know if renaissance man is the right term to use, but, but yeah, it probably works in fits. Um, but, but Jack likewise um, has made sure uh, over the course of his career Uh, that the public is educated, involved, uh, and informed, which is what we expect today's program to be. Jack, Doug, thank you very much. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Uh,
2: Special thanks to all those who are watching online and to those who are here. I was speaking to Josh and Zach and Paige uh, back during Black History Month, and I told them, oh, you know, by the way, that this upcoming June marks the centenary of James Weldon's Johnson publication of the uh, Book of American Negro Poetry, an anthology that included the 30, 31 famous poets at that time, including, uh, of course, Paul Lawrence Dunbar here, uh, here in Ohio, who is very beloved out of the Dayton area. So the idea came about that we could not let the centenary, the centennial, or the publication of this landmark work go forward without us recognizing it. <laughs> Sam referred to me as a renaissance man. No, I'm not. James Weldon Johnson was a renaissance man. Uh, born uh, actually June 17th, uh, just later on this week, will mark his 151st birthday anniversary. He was born June 17th, 1871 in Jacksonville, Florida. This man, by the time he was 23, had already graduated from Atlanta University, met Paul Lawrence Dunbar, with whom he became lifelong friends, and at the age of 23 became a high school principal in Stanton, uh, Stanton High, Stanton School in Florida. Uh, he went on after becoming a principal to study law, became a lawyer. Uh, his brother, John Rosamond Johnson, J. Rosamond Johnson, happened to be a songwriter. And on the uh, anniversary of Abraham Lincoln's birthday, he chose, they had written a song that they thought spoke to the time that had passed since Lincoln's assassination and looking into the future, 1900. Imagine how we all felt in 2000, the beginning of a new millennium. But in 1900, they were looking forward to the new year, new new century, and they wrote "Lift Every Voice and Sing," and it was actually a group of uh, elementary school students who first performed that song, and it's become, you know, the African American national anthem and a song emblematic of human rights all around the world. James Weldon Johnson uh, also became quite the literary literary activist and actual activist, serving as field field secretary for the NAACP. He was actually brought in uh, to heal the rift between the Booker T. Washington faction and the W.E.B. Du Bois faction uh, in the NAACP, and he served as their field secretary all the way until 1930. So in all of that, he also was a leading light of the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, He felt that If African-Americans could demonstrate to the world their humanity, their artistry through poetry, it would help combat ugly, persistent racism. And from his work through Zora Neale Hurston, Langston Hughes, Gwendolyn Brooks, uh, Rita Dove, Nikki Giovanni, all the way to... Amanda Gorman. We owe a debt to James Weldon Johnson. And uh, I'm very thankful and humble to help present this recognition of this great American. And I thank Doug Kreitler, who answered the call when I asked him to help me support this event. With that, we have a small video clip of Mr. Johnson's own voice, uh, reciting one of his most famous poems, The Creation from God's Trombones.
3: The creation is from my volume, God's Trombones. Read at Columbia University, December 24, 1935. James Weldon Johnson. And God stepped out on space. And he looked around and said, I'm lonely. I'll make me a world. And far as the eye of God could see, Darkness covered everything, grappled than a hundred midnights down on a cypress swamp. Then God smiled and the light broke. And the darkness rolled up on one side and the light stood shining on the other. And God said, that's good. Then God reached out and took the light in his hands. And God rolled the light around in his hands. Until he made the sun And he set that sun ablazing in the heavens And the light that was left from making the sun God gathered it up in a shining ball And flung it against the darkness Spangling the night with the moon and stars Then down between the darkness and the light He hurled the world And God said That's good Then God himself stepped down and the sun was on his right hand, the moon was on his left, the stars were clustered about his head, and the earth was under his feet. And God walked, and where he trod, his footsteps hollowed the valleys out and bulged the mountains up. Then he stopped and looked and saw that the earth was hot and barren. So God stepped over to the edge of the world and he spat out the seven seas. He batted his eyes and the lightnings flashed. He clapped his hands and the thunders rolled. And the waters above the earth came down. The cooling waters came down. Then the green grass sprouted and the little red flowers blossomed. The pine tree pointed his finger to the sky and the oak spread out his arms. And the lakes cuddled down in the hollows of the ground and the rivers ran down to the sea. Then God smiled again, and the rainbow appeared and curled itself around his shoulder. Then God raised his arm and he waved his hand over the sea and over the land, and he said, Bring forth, bring forth, and quicker than God could drop his hand, fishes and fowls and beasts and birds, swam the rivers and the seas, roamed the forests and the woods, and split the air with their wings. And God said, That's good. Then God walked around and God looked around on all that he had made. He looked at his sun and he looked at his moon and he looked at his little stars. He looked on his world with all its living things. And God said, I'm lonely still. Then God sat down on the side of a hill where he could think. By a deep, wide river he sat down. And with his head in his hands, God thought and thought. Till he thought, I'll make me a man. Up from the bed of the river, God scooped the clay. And by the bank of the river, he kneeled him down. And there the great God Almighty, who lit the sun and fixed it in the sky. Who flung the stars to the most far corner of the night. Who rounded the earth in the middle of his hand, this great God, like a mammy bending over her baby, kneeled down in the dust, coiling over a lump of clay till he shaped it in his own image. Then into it he breathed the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Amen. Amen.
2: So, with that, I'd like to welcome our poets to our stage. We have poet and poetesses, if I'm saying that right. Uh, We'll start with our elder. Let's have people who don't know who you are, find out.
4: My name is Issaid. I've been writing poetry for 50 years and I've written 45 books and about 75 plays. Mm. And I enjoy it because it helps me to know who I am and helps others to know who they are also. Uh, I enjoy it, I, I do workshops in schools, churches. I collect shoes and clothing from churches and schools. They don't pay me. They give me shoes or they give me clothes and I send them to Africa or I will send them to uh, Haiti. That's the place where I send them to now. I believe in helping people. I'm from a family of 10 children, eight, seven boys and three girls. And every morning, and I went to, to elementary school in Atlanta, Georgia. We always sang the Black National Anthem first. Then we sang the American National Anthem. And then we sang the World National Anthem. But we always knew something about ourselves first before we learned anything about anybody. We learned who we were. And that's what I try to do now, especially with children. Cause a lot of children don't know who they are. They don't know their history. So we have to take the time to let them know what their history is so they can pass it on to the next generation. Uh, I'm gonna begin now with a little poem called, it's the 21st century and our dues are paid. Seems like we never tired. Our task ain't complete. Sights just to be seen through clear eyes, without drugs or alcohol. You can tell your mama, you can tell your daddy, but you can tell your folks, it's the 21st century and our dues are paid. Gone into another world, a world of many sounds, black folks, folks, sounds, and we will never fade Because it's the 21st century and our dues are paid. Children, 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 we will give you our strength. Walk into our path. It's very direct and clear. Ain't got no time to be afraid. Because it's the 21st century and our dues are paid. This is our world too. Truth will guide us all the way. Strangers will sometimes trick you. Sometimes they will trick you into tricking who you are. So you will have less knowledge of who you are. I enjoy writing because it helps me to know who I am. It helps me to live with myself. I don't have down moments. All my moments are up, (laughs) positive.
5: Thank you. sir. My name is Dion Custer Edwards, and I am a great many things, um, and identify in a great many ways, um, but the making I do in the world is often with language, sometimes with sound, sometimes with music. Um, I also am an educator and have spent the better part of my career in spaces where we learn and teach. I tend to work a lot with Adolescents, so in high schools, but I also work with the littles too, because they're sweet and bright and open and and lovely to work with. Um, I am at the Wexner Center for the Arts in learning and public practice, and I head that area, and our endeavors are often education and community-based work. I'm originally from Cleveland and grew up with a very rich art education. I think that's how I ended up in, in art education spaces because I went to public school and I went to Cleveland Heights all throughout my childhood, I grew up, graduated from Cleveland Heights, University Heights High School, go Tigers, and um, just had a really profound, I would say, art education, it was available to me. When there was so little available to me, that was available to me. And I, I think I wouldn't be the person that I am without a free art education that was available to me. Um, I did, once I showed interest in the arts, um, my mother, who's a way maker, um, Convinced my father to get me involved in all these things. I wanted to do all the things in the arts. And so I got a chance to study at the music. If anyone knows Cleveland Arts, there's just a really rich, long history. And I studied at the, the music settlement. I studied at the Cleveland Institute of Music for the better part of my childhood on up until I graduated high school. I got to study piano and flute and music theory and voice. Um, I began writing when I was in elementary school and fell in love with language and knew that that would be a part of my life forever, um, came here to go to school, actually. Came to Ohio State and um, studied a lot of things before I got brave enough to become an English major. And I called my mom and I said, mom, think I know what I'm supposed to major in. I love all my English classes. We talk, we write. I love it. It's the best. And she said, I was wondering when you were going to discover that when you were going to discover that this is language and words was the place where you were supposed to be. And I was like, well, why didn't you tell me? She was like, because you wouldn't have done it if I would have told you. So she allowed me to discover it for myself um, and graduated from there, but also was involved. I was in a band in undergrad and got a chance to, to gig a lot and play. And so music definitely is a, is a kind of foundational or undercurrent in my work. I, I oftentimes am using my ear when I'm writing. Um, music and rhythm show up. Um, so much and and um, Johnson talks about that. Johnson talks about how how music shows up, and even sort of just hearing um, the poem that we just heard, the kind of I grew up with those spirituals. I grew up with those, you know, so that feels very familiar. That's a familiar space. I grew up in the Baptist church. And, and so all of that runs through me and got a chance to come here and, and live and work as an artist. There's, I continue to write. I continue to publish. I continue to work in education spaces. I've worked in dozens of schools across um, this city, and um, I created something called the Pages Program, and um, that's a, a dedicated program that is 17 years in the running, in, in the making, and and a, a sort of dedicated space where we write all year long with high school students, and we spend time with them for a year. We bring in um, writers. I've worked with Scott and Pages, thank you, um, but lots of different writers and artists from all over this region and this area. To work with students. And so I'm just really lucky to be able to have carved out a life where I can do that. And I'm happy to be here to, to speak about the topic today. Thank you for having me.
2: You talk about the con- connection between music and, and poetry. And uh, James Weldon Johnson also was an educator. That was his first career a teacher. Uh, and of course, he did music with his brother. So was. Is your band still active?
5: <laughs> <laughs> I think you're going to get me in trouble. I tell people I'm retired as a musician, and the music tends to show up inside of me and sort of manifest, I think, in some other ways, particularly in my writing. I yes. think in the way that I speak, I think in the way that I move, uh-huh. the way that I move about the world, I think music sort of shows up there. Um, but I was, I was, I don't know, I was a lucky girl to get to study. I studied classical music for 20 plus years. I got a chance to study. If you all know the great Hank Marr, the late great oh my Hank God. Marr. You're,
2: you're talking our language here.
5: I got a chance to study with the late great Hank Marr because I went in and begged him to study. And I said, I would just love to learn. Like, I've been learning jazz, but I really don't know what I'm doing. And I just really want to learn with you. And I just, he was like, why don't you play? And so I play, and he's like, okay. And I wasn't a music major at the time, but um, he allowed me to study with him for two years and just, you know, really sort of teach me some foundational kinds of things around music and particularly around jazz that I think changed me forever, particularly changed the way that I write, changed yeah. the way that I hear.
2: Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Well, for those of you who, are, are watching and don't know. Hank Maher is a legend. He is the B3 patriarch,
5: Oregon. B3 pa- Oregon.
2: Yeah. patriarch of, of the Hammond B3, yeah. uh, and, and, and Columbus, Ohio, Central Ohio is famous for its Hammond B3 players because of Hank Maher. Yeah. And we have closest to me, Mr. Scott Woods. Scott.
6: Thank you, Doctor.
0: Um, <laughs> you <don't>...
6: <laughs> <laughs> so I want to begin by saying, um, that whenever I'm in the presence of one of these two people, I always get a little flustered. Uh, When I began my work as a poet in the world, um, I actually saw both of these people at very formative stages in my life. Uh, I actually saw Dion First playing with the band uh, in the Hale Center, uh, the old Hale Center. So... um, so that was amazing. And then later, uh, I saw her performing with a group uh, hybrid tongues. And uh, and I was like, I, I mean, I was already doing those things, but I was like, I, that's next level. And so as I was coming into poetry and into the open mic world and all of that, Dion was leaving. <laughs> and so I did not have the honor of, um, Sharing stages and getting tutelage and, and being able to draw that energy, and so it's it's always amazing to me to share that space and um, and to see her in her, her light now. And then said of course goes um, without saying uh, when I began performing in open mics uh, regularly, Isad was there because Isad is always there. Um, said, is, I mean, he's the light, right? He's the, he's the, the path. And, um, he was always, you know, pulling poets to the, poets that he admired. He would pull them to the side and just, you know, drop a little knowledge on them, asking questions, you know, what you going to do with this? You know, whatever. (laughs) Does it pay? You know, whatever. (laughs) And, um, and just, just, I mean, there's, there are no, there are not enough words to, to um, speak to Issaid's influence, uh, not just on me, but on, on Columbus poetry at large, right? He's not, uh, he is not the, um, he is not the godfather of black poets, right? He is the, he is the scion of all poets, right? And so, uh, so thank you both for putting me here, here right? That's pretty much how that happened. Anyhow, I'm a poet, obviously, but I'm a writer of other things as well. Um, I have done a stint as a journalist for the last four years. Um, I've been running an open mic reading, the Writers Block Poetry Night, for the last 24 years. Um, I run a nonprofit organization called Streetlight Guild which is a performing arts organization uh, that has a venue right on Main Street. Um, And we do uh, a focus on Columbus artists with an emphasis on black artists, not exclusively, but largely. And so we're doing all manner of programming there, music, uh, art exhibits, readings, all of that. Um, And I've published a few books um, like a drop in the bucket next to his set, but uh, but they exist in the world, right? Uh, so that's the resume. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just add, as far as James Walton Johnson goes, just briefly, because I know we'll get a little deeper into it. Um, you know, to me, if you're a if you're a black poet, you have to be, I guess, what we're calling Renaissance, but. Um, that's probably an insufficient term for Johnson. Um, you have to be so many things in this world, right? Um, the poetry alone will not save you. So you have to, you need your people, you need your work, you need their work, you need all of those things connecting. And so Johnson is a is an extremely powerful example of that in action. And I'll just stop there because I know Jack wants to get into it. Well,
2: thanks, thanks, Scott. And, you know, I'd like to, open this up to, you know, is said uh, to Dion and, and to you, Scott. James Weldon Johnson's main thesis and, and part of what he really challenged all the Harlem Renaissance poets to do uh, was to uplift people via, you know, poetry. Do you think the spoken word can actually have an impact? You know, the, 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 the poetic word can have an impact on how people perceive you Perceive your people. Perceive the politics around them. I'll I'll, I'll go to what is first because he talks about identity a lot.
4: Uh, I would say so, yes. Uh, The way I got started as the performer, my father used to sing in a quartet. He sang nothing but notes, no lyrics. Mm -hmm. So once a month, he would go to Mississippi or South Carolina or Florida and he would ask, anybody want to go? And I always raised my hand, because okay. I just could not believe that the whole world was like Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> yeah. So he, he would let me go, and then I got hooked on it. And then uh, uh, after a while, I started doing my own thing and he started helping me out and helping me get where I was going. He never gave me any concrete advice, but he gave me some, some things that I needed to know because he was he was a, a, a gospel quartet saying nothing but notes, no lyrics. Mm. I said I did lyrics but no no, no. no gospel. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a lot in common, mm-hmm. and that's how I learned how to learn the business from from watching him and his quartet. It was four of them. They was together for about fifty five years.
2: Wow. I can imagine, you know, a gospel quartet in a harmony, but you know, think of someone like the Dixie and the Hummingbirds or you know, yeah. Pilgrim Travelers. Right, right. I, can, you know, just imagining that song, that that songcraft without words, mm-hmm. that, that's spectacular. It was, it was. Mm-hmm. Did that sense of what you heard in the music, uh, infuse the way you wrote poetry? Uh,
4: not necessarily, uh-huh. because once I finished high school here in Columbus, I joined the service and Mm -hmm. when I was in the service, I had an opportunity to to travel the world Mm -hmm. because I wanted to know what the whole world was like. I didn't want to know what Atlanta was like or Mm -hmm. Columbus. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know what the whole world was like because I just could not believe that the whole world was like America. I had to go to Japan, Okinawa, Korea, Formosa, Bangkok, Philippines, France, Germany, of Africa. and by that, I learn how other people live hmm. and it helps you to get, have respect for other people.
2: Mm-hmm. Respect and perspective. Yes, Thank you, sir. Yes, Dion. <sighs> repeat the question. You know, the, the power of poetry to ennoble and uplift, yes. you know, an oppressed people.
5: Yes.
2: Literature writ large in some cases.
5: Yeah, you know, I do think there's something about language, art, I'll say it widely about art, Mm -hmm. but I'm definitely thinking of Mm -hmm. the literary tradition. I think there's something about making with language Mm -hmm. that allows us to see hard things, hear hard things, shape hard things um, and really um craft lines that even as they are hard they are beautiful Mm -hmm. or hard to not read or hard to not turn away from that's what I think is really powerful about poetry um is that the crafting of a line takes so much effort, yes. and, and there's some patience. Sometimes you can be working on things for years, one piece for years, or a body of work for years, and um, there is a kind of experience that you have to have in the world to, to sort of show up in, in the language. I think what, what Johnson was doing with this work here, mm-hmm. and I think what, what poetry can do, does do, will do, is show us things about our humanity. Hmm. And I think art does that. Art does that in a way that um, I think can be unexpected and surprising, can sometimes be deeply painful. But the art, when art does it, it's like this might hurt a little, this might sting, or Mm -hmm. this might open up some emotional space for you, but I'm not going to leave you here with it. I'm here with you. And so the artist asks for that kind of exchange with the reader, for instance, and says, I'm here with you, actually. And, um, and in some ways, as I was reading through this text again and again, I was thinking about the lessons elders have taught me.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: I also remember, it said, "Pulling will pull you aside." I mean, I was at the Hell center too, right? And just being with this, it said, and just being young and thinking, you know, you don't know anything, right? I still don't know, but like being young and thinking you know some things, thinking you writing something, it said, "What? What? Okay, come, let's talk about that a little, you know." But then also very encouraging, and in some ways, the elders. I mean, they just continue to raise us, and in some ways, of reading these works. Um, and I'll say something about. Um, it being heavily male, but we'll talk about that later. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, <laughs> but um, sort of reading these works and hearing my father's. Uh. And when I say my father's, I say my grandfather's and my uncle's and my father. And in all the, the, those, those sort of men or male perspectives in my life and yeah. how, um, you know, some of, the, some of who I am. How they raised me. Um, but then also some things that um, were not, that were also hard. So, really looking at how the mothers in my life and the fathers in my life had a life of their own that didn't have anything to do with me. They had their own lives. And that sometimes, oftentimes, shows up in my work. I write about how folks came up from Georgia, from Alabama, and moved to Cleveland. I think about how maybe my parents made art even more available to me to smooth out my blue collar edges and to do a little something else. With this girl from Cleveland, maybe you'll do a little something, right? So I do think art can, um, can show us things that are hard to look at or to see or to feel um, and give us enough space to feel it and to honor it, yeah. remind us that we're human.
2: I am glad this is being recorded because I really like what you just said. and I didn't have a chance to write it down. Very profound. Great analysis, Deanna. And, you know, you think about, you know, your your point that art, particularly poetry, allows you to address something that's hard or or ugly, but you don't leave the person there. You you bring them to a resolution Mm -hmm. or at least hope. I I was just thinking of some of the poetry in in recent years. Uh, You know, of course, we've had, you know, powerful African-American women, you know, offer poetry at Inaugurals. Goodness gracious, you know, Amanda Gorman mm-hmm. and, and what she had to say. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, Maya Angelou and all mm-hmm. the things she had to say mm-hmm. uh, through poetry. Things that probably would have started, you know, some type of, you know, social mm-hmm. <laughs> media firestorm had they been spoken on media, but mm-hmm. speaking standing in front of a microphone and doing it with poetry uh, really allowed people to look at some things they would rather not look at or would look right. away from. So thank you for that. Scott.
6: I assume the question was rhetorical.
2: Um, <laughs> uh, no, it wasn't.
6: <laughs> I mean, the fact that we are talking about poets yeah. and painters and writers and dancers and more a hundred years, at, more than a hundred years after the fact,
0: yeah.
6: when we talk about the Harlem Renaissance, that's what we're doing um it it seems very i mean it's it's easy to do right you just drop the harlem renaissance anytime you want to talk about black people in america <laughs> but you know these while they while the people of the renaissance were many things we recognize them primarily as artists of one type or another yeah. and so clearly that work does work mm-hmm. as something, right? As activism, as nation building, as historical record, um, as, you know, you could run that list, I could run that list all day. Mm-hmm. Um, as someone who does work uh, in the artistic community, as a, you know, art curator, as um, you know, as an essayist, as a journalist, as a person who hires musicians, who hires artists for projects and various things, I am always cognizant of the example of the Harlem Renaissance. I put, I created a Harlem Renaissance show specifically to bring that work uh, into the present, again, to show its relevancy, right? It's It's not just historical. If it's just historical, then it can't hurt you. Yeah. Right? It doesn't doesn't necessarily have to change you at all. You have the option as to whether or not you will allow it to change you. But if it continues to be relevant, then you you cannot deny it's past. Good point. And so it's, you know, this book, this session, these words, all of that works. It's working right now, you know?
2: Thank you. Is uh, do you have another poem you could grace us with?
4: Yes, uh, I have a short one here. It's called, it's about life and death. We born, we live, we die. Our bodies returns to dust, which makes the things grow. Alone comes from water and makes mud. Hmm. So be careful what you step in. It could be my life.
2: Mm. Wow. <clears throat> you no, know, I, I wanted to uh, reflect on something that, Deion said that women were not present, you know, the way they are now. You know, in, in 1922, during the Harlem Renaissance, but they were pioneers. Yes. You know, you, you had Zora stirring it up. Mm-hmm. What, what historical women that you, do you look to in in the realm of the arts that inspire you and and, and give you, you know, uh, that kind of like, if they did it, I can do it and shame on me if I don't do it better.
5: Thank you. Thank you for um, that question. Um, I, when I was reading through this particular publication um, and thinking how important it was and how it's situated artists who are identifying as black or mm-hmm. identifying as um, at the time um, of many things, mm-hmm. right? Uh, words where we don't in the contemporary mm-hmm. maybe um, use, but as of African descent, the diaspora, black, mm-hmm. um, I was really looking for folks that I could identify with and folks that I could Um, sort of trace some sort of a thread in the way that I'm identifying and the way that I'm showing up in the world. And I I really began to um, uh, spend some time with Ann Spencer's work and Georgia Douglas Johnson. Georgia Douglas
2: Johnson, yes.
5: And I wanted to study at Oberlin Conservatory, too, (laughs) like Georgia Douglas Johnson. That was a dream of mine for a really long time. I didn't end up studying there, but for a really long time, that was a dream. And... um, Georgia also studied at Cleveland College of Music, so um, there's this Ohio literary tradition too that I that I think is really important, and um, folks should sort of really go look at who are the writers um, that are that are writing in and around Ohio that may have lived in Ohio. May obviously um, Dunbar and Hughes are contemporaries as well, you know. Folks like Jacqueline Woodson. and I mean, you know, Rita Dove. Of course. Um, I think that I'm always looking for some sort of echo or, or um, where do I learn this from? How do I know this? Um, and so I, I began really sort of looking at Ann Spencer's work and looking at George, um, Georgia Douglas um, Johnson's work and saying, Oh yeah, this is where I got this from. Um, what,
2: would you care to read one of your I, favorites?
5: I might read a line too, because you know, some of this work I found not—it's beyond this this publication. There Correct. is a piece that I want to sort of point out a couple lines. But um, Georgia Douglas Johnson says, "A woman with a burning flame, deep covered through the years with ashes, ah." Uh, She hid it deep and smothered it with tears. Sometimes a baleful light would rise from out the dusky bed, and then the woman hushed it quick to slumber on as dead. At last, the weary war was done. The tapers were alight, and with a sigh of victory, she breathed a soft good night. So I think about how Johnson writes about um, I don't know, the heart of a woman and strength and, um, you know, in the world, uh, she said, your world is as big as you make it. I know for I used to abide in the narrowest nest in a corner, my wings pressing close to my side, but I sighted the distant horizon where the skyline encircled the sea and I throbbed with a burning desire to travel this immensity. I battered the cordons around me and cradled my wings on the breeze, then soared to the uttermost reaches with rapture, with power, with ease. Mm -hmm. It's that kind of a sort of a wishing, but also that kind of inner strength, inner life, inner light that I I didn't make that up. So when I write in that tradition or I write looking for the light or I write when it's dark around me and I'm looking, looking, you know, looking for for spaces to breathe, um, you know, drawn to writers that um, that have come before me, that run through me um, and that have taught me and will continue to teach me. So I found myself looking through this work for for women and for voices that, were, um, that had experiences that were either similar to mine or remind me of the mothers and the sisters and the daughters that, um, that, insert,
6: that have encircled my life. Thank you, well said. I'm gonna kind of touch on the question you just asked Dion, actually, mm-hmm. in while we're doing this. You know, the absence, the seeming absence of women you know, being heralded in that movement, uh, it's real um, and it's sad. Um, and the deeper that you dig into that movement, the sadder it becomes when you realize that that movement began with the efforts of women. True. Women editors, women writers. Ida B. Wells. Women journalists, right? And so that's where that movement comes from. And then for various reasons, and there are a couple of excellent books on this, recent books on this. Mm. One of them is uh, the new Negro, not the old, the new Negro, but one that came out a few years ago. It talks about um, Locke very specifically, and in great detail and about how, you know, some infighting kind of made the Renaissance happen and made certain things like women not happen. Right. Anyhow, uh, all of that is to say, you know, to me, um, you know, the the art still functions. It's art, right? It's art. It's always going to function. But what we do with it is really the more important question or issue. It may not be a question at all, actually. So, for instance... Um, British writer Jeanette Winterson talks about in an essay called Art Objects or Art Objects depending on how you read it. She talks about how when we encounter art you look at a painting and you say, I like this or I don't like this. That's about you. That is not about the art. That is all about you as the audience, the viewer, the reader, the listener right? And so art should force you to interrogate not the art but yourself, right? So when it talks about I write to, you know, learn who I am, you should write, learn who you are. Like that's why you should be surrounded by as much art in all its forms as possible. Not because it's great or because you like it but because it because in, in responding to it, you are asking yourself questions. Or you should be. You should be, right? There's a whole arts festival happening a few miles away. <laughs> That's a lot of questions sitting in the
0: street, <laughs> right? At this point in the program, Jack turned it to the audience for questions. And we did have a question, but it didn't get recorded. So I thought I'd throw it in here. The question was, what makes art endure? Are there through lines that help art endure in context of the moment, or does it transcend time?
6: It's 90% luck. (laughs) And then the other 10% is intent. Um, Now, that's on one level, right? That is, how is art that is 100 years old, how does that make it into being in front of me 100 years later? That's 10%. Well, actually, that's all of it, but largely the 10%. But there's a hundred times more of this art that's just the 90%, right? Or maybe, maybe. It, It just functions as art, right? Like it just. Art persists because it is art, it is not a choice. Right, No society chooses to be artistic. It is. They all are. Even when that art is merely functional, it is still art. They perceive the value of it as a thing that must exist for something to function. Right, And so a vase is not just a vase. Right, It's not just a jug. It is an artistic jug. It is a cultural jug. It is a historical record. It is a story, which is so many other things on top of that. And so art does that whether we acknowledge it or not, right? right? A cave painting that we have not discovered yet (laughs) is still a cave painting. It is still in some function art. So if the question is how do we make art persevere beyond social, you know, means and taste, flavor, that's that 10%. That's that intent. We have to want that. Yeah. We as a society, as a community, as a city, as a family, as a couple of people sitting on a stand, Well, we have to want that to happen to make, and we can make that happen. It's never been easier. It's never been easier.
5: Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, if I may add a few thoughts to how you summed it up in such a way that, I don't know, there's something you keep saying that's resonating with me about art doing a kind of work. Art is laboring, it's laboring. Whether we recognize it or not, whether we even feel it or not, it is laboring. This stage is laboring, this building is laboring. These words we have in our pockets are laboring. We are laboring. Now some of us are laboring in a way that others are not. But art is laboring and art has created a kind of infrastructure, a kind of cultural infrastructure that I appreciate what you said about whether we acknowledge it or not. It is here. It is the history. It is our histories, our cultural histories. It is the evidence of our humanity. And so we can take that and say we like it or we don't like it. We can take that and collect it or not. But at the end of the day, it just is and great societies and cultures allow that infrastructure to exist. Preserve it, care for it, support it, resource it, acknowledge it. You don't have to like all of it, but understanding why art exists in a society and why artists are very important contributions to any great society contributing in ways that you can look or not look, but still contributing in really important ways. And they didn't choose that. art. You're either born doing that or you're not. You're either an artist or you're not. You go into a profession or you don't. But artists are doing a work that I think still is invisible. And artists who are identifying as Black are definitely doing a work that completely right? It's still very invisible. You think you know some things, and, you don't, and we don't. We don't. And so in some ways, that endurance question is an interesting one because it's like, I would then say, because art has us in inquiry, I love that, yes, um, how might we endure? Because we can ask the question whether or not art will endure. I'd like us to really think about that in the context of how might we endure?
2: And I'd like to uh, add to all this wonderful commentary something I, I in my studies, I, I read has resonated with me for over a decade. It's something that Lorraine Hansberry wrote, mm-hmm. and she, and she said, by concentrating on the authentic, the the details of your life, which is what uh, is said does, and I think that's why he's such a genius poet. By concentrating on that particular, that specific part of your humanity, if you do it honestly and authentically, you discover something that's universal. And that universal is what lasts. We'll let you have the last words, Mr. Set.
4: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Some years ago, I met uh, Ossie Davis, and I started sending him some of my books. Oh, Ossie. And he would critique them, and he would write them back, and they wouldn't know what he thought of them. But he said, uh, I like your work, but you're hitting them too hard.
2: Oh, you're hitting them too hard?
0: <laughs>
4: <laughs> so he said, he what you need to do is hit them hard and make them laugh. Yeah. And I found out that works.
0: Thank you for tuning into the BPL podcast today. I hope you enjoyed. it. To find out more about the Bexley Public Library, including upcoming events, visit our website at bexleylibrary.org or the handle at Bexley Library across all social media platforms. Special thanks to MoFoDeep for lending us their song Bourbon Neat for the podcast. Please check out all of their music at FOMODeep.com. You can email me with any comments, questions, or suggestions at podcast at bexleylibrary.org. Thanks.